Welcome to Be That Life podcast, where real life stories of health, longevity, and success come to life. I am your host, Mary Christine, and I'm here to ignite your passion and really inspire you to create the life you've always dreamed of. Every few weeks, I will bring you extraordinary individuals who have really defied the odds, shattered barriers, and achieved greatness in their respective fields, from groundbreaking scientists to visionary entrepreneurs and even fearless athletes and relentless innovators, I will find ways to uncover the secrets behind their remarkable journeys. So whether you're seeking to optimize your well-being, unleash your inner potential, or really simply looking for that extra dose of motivation, Be That Life will be your go-to source to inspire you to shatter limitations and embrace the life you were meant to live. Now, are you ready to get inspired? Cancer is a very silent disease. It creeps at you without you knowing. And then if you're lucky, you get diagnosed stage one. There's overwhelming massive evidence that having meat, red meat, on daily basis and large amounts regularly are more prone to developing colon cancer. Dr. Ali Al-Dahme is one of the most well-known surgeons in the world, having conducted over 7,000 surgeries in his 15-year career. His dedication to his patients and his profession is unparalleled. He has been recognized for his exceptional skills and expertise by numerous organizations and professional societies globally. He has played an essential role in advancing the field of surgery and has helped establish the UAE as a center of medical excellence. Cancer claims the lives of approximately 9.6 million people annually, with new cases projected to rise to over 29 million by 2040. 90% of recurrences take place in the first year. These staggering figures illustrate the scale of the challenge we face. The World Health Organization estimates that over 650 million adults are affected by obesity globally, while childhood obesity rates have tripled over the past four decades. There's now more evidence and there's big talk out there in the scientific field and between the medical uh, colleagues about obesity being the biggest cause of disease. It feeds cancer cells, destroys the body on a cellular level. In today's conversation, we will discuss his journey through the triumph and trials, the tears and triumphs that have shaped the legacy of Dr. Ali al-Dahme. Within these tales lies the heartbeats restored, the lives forever changed, and the profound impact of a surgeon whose name has become synonymous with greatness. Dr. Ali. Hi, Mary. My super dear friend. Yeah, nice to be here. Thank you for your invitation. You're welcome. Mm. So glad to have you here. I'm happy too. Dr. Ali. Yes, Mary. Pancreatic cancer has the highest or one of the highest mortality rates from all the major cancers. So if I ask you today about Steve Jobs and if he was on your operating table right now, what would you do differently? Wow. That's a different question. It's Oh, Steve Jobs. Um, well, uh, I love Steve on a personal level. I think he's an amazing guy. I've uh, always followed his uh, talks, uh, his uh, speech. Uh, whenever he gave a talk about something new, uh, he's a very motivational, exceptional guy. And uh, everyone in the world probably was sad when 
they heard that he had pancreatic cancer. And uh, as a, a surgeon who deals with pancreatic cancer, I probably uh, felt it because I see it every time with my patients. If he was on my operating table, I would do anything and everything possible to uh, give him a chance. Uh, pancreatic cancer is one of the deadliest cancers because it grows in you without you knowing. So uh, by the time people get diagnosed, it's often really late and uh, it's either spread uh, to other organs or uh, went deep inside the body that you can't remove it. So that's what makes it really sad. Uh, it was a big loss with Steve. He tried everything. He's an he's a exceptional guy with uh, motivation, dedication, enormous resilience. Um, his legacy and his motivation talk and inspiration will continue to inspire people uh, for the longest time. If he was on my table, I would do anything possible to remove his cancer and give him a chance to life. Yeah. Have you managed to save other people who have pancreatic cancer? So I operate on people with pancreatic cancer regularly. Um, people who we operate on and uh, we get it early on in the phase of the tumor because it's stage one, two, three, and four. So the key thing is identifying people when they are on stage one. And yes, I've operated on large number of people who were diagnosed as stage one. And when you operate on them, you remove it all, they live forever. They live for 10 years, 15 years, and it's a great thing. So you have to catch them at stage one, primarily. Correct. And if it reaches stage two and onwards, there's very little chance that they will survive. Because I did read somewhere that it's about 12% the survival rate within the five-year period. Is that correct? Uh, pancreatic cancer has the lowest survival rate. So once it spreads into other organs in the body, it's very difficult to control. Um, the medications available now and the uh, techniques that we use and the immunotherapy, uh, the medications that use your own immunity to fight cancer has improved the survival, but still very low. Uh, so the key thing is to do early checkups and uh, if possible to lead a healthy lifestyle. And I think the key thing is checkups. So if you get identified with pancreatic cancer at the early stage, you have a good chance. If it's a late stage, then uh, whatever is available today might not help. And we know this on the story of Steve. Steve Jobs had uh, access to the latest technology. He had access to every kind of doctor or surgeon or anyone who's into innovation. Uh, he was at the forefront of technology. And if he would have had the chance, uh, then he would have had it. But the sad thing is pancreatic cancer is deadly, and when it's stage four, it's very difficult to fight. So what are the symptoms uh, when someone develops at least stage one pancreatic cancer? Yeah, so uh, that's a difficult thing because uh, pancreatic cancer or any type of cancer, when it's on stage one, 90% of the time has no symptoms. Right. So cancer is a that's very scary. silent disease. It creeps at you without you knowing. And then if you're lucky, you get diagnosed stage one. So that's why the key thing, you know, all the technology, all the innovation, everything, all the new research is trying to identify, identify markers in the blood uh, or blood tests uh, or genetic tests or DNA tests that can identify people who might develop cancer and then pick them up when they're stage one. 
And uh, until that happens, uh, early detection means regular checkups. Right. So they would really know if they have it without these like regular checkups. Correct. Got it. Because once people start having abdominal pain or they've noticed change in the color uh, of their eyes or skin or weight loss or loss of appetite, usually it's stage two, three, and four. And uh, stage one and two, uh, you have a good chance of having a, a good battle against it with available medication and surgery. Uh, but stage four, it's difficult. Going back to your journey, you are one of the most sought after surgeons globally. You have helped thousands of lives. You have saved thousands of lives. But I want to take a step back and really understand how did this start? Where did we begin? Um, I guess I, I always liked helping people when I was at school. And um, I was fascinated with medicine. And I thought uh, it's so cool, uh, you know, seeing someone who's sick and then um, helping them get better and uh, relieving pain. And uh, I, got, I got good marks and I applied for medical school. So I, I went to medical school. I loved it through medical school because the human body is so complex. Um, we are a miracle as a human being. Um, sometimes you have an engine uh, that uh, gets tired of being, being on for like 50 hours or like a car that gets tired after 100 kilometers. The human body doesn't get tired. Uh, we have the heart that keeps pumping all the time. It's just pumping, pumping for 90 years, 95 years. Some people reached 120 years. And this is fascinating. As a human body, we have the capacity to regenerate. Um, the brain is amazing. The blood circulation is amazing. So I was fascinating about this. And then when I was in medical school, uh, in my final year of medical school, there was a patient who was 65 years old, came into hospital, and they had no blood pressure. They were collapsing. And um, they had a ruptured aneurysm. So it's the big blood vessel in the middle of the abdomen. Uh, that takes blood from the heart to all parts of the body. And uh, there's a condition that's called an aneurysm where this blood vessel gets really big and suddenly pops. So people bleed, they lose all their blood pressure, and if it doesn't get fixed within a few hours, they die. And I had a case like this. The patient was uh, moved from the uh, emergency room to the operating room. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and... There was a surgeon that I'll never forget. His name is Mr. Packer. This was back in New Zealand, in the south of New Zealand. He came in. He was 60 years old. He had lots of gray hair. Came in quietly. And I thought, I never saw him before. He came into the room. He held the scalpel. He opened this lady up and uh, fixed this aneurysm. He stopped the bleeding. He put a graft. And he did it in seven hours. And next day, this lady was talking to her family. And I thought, this is wow. And... I wanted to be a surgeon. What a miracle. I mm. guess you've seen so many of that well, in your, even in your practice. Mm. I believe you also studied in Harvard. How was that experience? Amazing. It was the uh, most amazing experience of my life. I feel uh, a sense of uh, uh, on, I've been honored. I'm very grateful. Um, I applied and in the position I applied for, there's thousand people who want to have the opportunity to do that program in surgery at uh, Boston and Harvard Medical School. And uh, I got selected. 
It's an amazing place because everyone around you is dedicated, um, enthusiastic, a positive energy. Everyone there just wants to make a difference in this world when it comes to health and um, medicine. It's hard work, it's dedication, it's pioneering, it's cutting edge. Uh, it teaches you to throw your ego away and just be humble and be kind. Um, because the more knowledge you know, the more you know that you don't know. And uh, I learned this in Boston, yes. That's right. How long did it take you to study to become a surgeon? Uh, 14 years. 14 years. And in those 14 years, have you ever at any point just thought like, I don't want to do this? Never, no. Because they break you. They yes. challenge you. Yes. Uh, I guess I didn't understand this back then because... Uh, during the training and setting you up, the more complex complex cases you take on and the more uh, you advance in your training, they try to break you more. Uh, they try to make you give up because at the end of the day, they're preparing you to be in charge on someone's life at uh, four o'clock in the morning who has been struck by a truck or hit by an accident and bleeding to death. And wow. he's, in, he's on the table in front of you. And uh, no one in the room is responsible for this life. You have to fix it. You can't look around. You can't ask for, for anyone to stand there and fix You have to fix it. Right. And uh, I guess they, throughout these years, they were preparing you for that moment rather than trying to break you. So they, be, they were tough. Uh, they pushed you to the limit of your resilience. Um, they wanted to know whether you can handle pressure, uh, you can manage stress, uh, you can wake up every day in the morning and say, well, forget about yesterday, we are today, we need to keep going. Right. You have to be able to put your emotions on ice. Right. Now, another question I wanted to ask you is, as one of the very top surgeons, you're faced with extreme challenge all the time. How has this shaped your experiences and your approach towards how you treat patients today? Um, well, um, you evolve with your job. So uh, as you grow and you see more patients and you develop experience, there's so many things you learn. You learn things on daily basis. You learn things from every single patient you see, from every single operation you do, from every experience you come across. Um, you could talk for hours about this, but what the highlights of this one, uh, you have to treat every patient as if they are your own family. Yeah, that's true. Because one of the fascinating things I've learned doing surgery that uh, with all the diversity that we live in, with all the backgrounds we come from, when you hold a scalpel and cut through a human's body skin, uh, the only difference is the first layer. So the only difference between um, someone who is uh, totally blonde and someone who comes from uh, West Africa, East Africa, uh, North America, or China is the skin. Everything underneath the skin on anatomy is the same. So it teaches you, one, to treat everyone with respect. Uh, it teaches you to treat everyone with kindness because... Uh, no one chooses to come to hospital. No one signs to spend their day on the operating room. Uh, so they come to the operating room because they have disease. Uh, 
or because they uh, have something needs to be fixed. So I've learned to treat everyone with kindness, uh, to have empathy uh, towards your human fellow. Um, it taught me to not take things for granted. I have so many stories of people who woke up in the morning, uh, were going to their work, uh, said goodbye to their family, and got hit by a truck. That's right. I was transferred in an ambulance for me to operate on them. That's right. So it taught That's me crazy. that, okay, um, you can plan for the future, but never forget today. Be grateful for today and um, forget yesterday because today is what you have and you have to make the most of it. Can you share a particularly inspiring story of a patient experience that you had that really transformed their life? Oh, <clears throat> so many stories. The most current one. Yeah, so um, there's so many, like when you operate with cancer, you're fortunate enough to uh, see these people uh, get through their disease. Uh, they send you a card on the first year and you think you're happy, but then when the card comes after five years and they're still alive and they give you a phone call. So... Um, if you say the recent story, like last week, I had a patient come in, in my clinic and uh, she looked fit, very athletic. Um, and she sat down. I thought she was a new patient. And uh, I asked her, hi, how are you? How's things going? And how can I help you today? She said, oh, Dr. Ali, you can't remember me. I said, actually, I can't. And they said, oh, you operated on me five years ago. I had ovarian cancer. Wow. And they told me I didn't have a chance. And uh, you did surgery on me. Um, and here I am today. That's incredible. And I'm cancer free. And I, I, I remember I, we, we, I hugged her and uh, it just humbles you. And um, it's inspiring to see these people get along with their life and go back to their families happy. So, yes. So to top up on that question, you said five years. I do know that there's this... Um, kind of protocol that after five years you're considered cancer free is that true most cancers yes so we follow patients the most uh, recurrence the thing that we worry about the most after doing cancer surgery is recurrence so you operate on someone with cancer you remove everything the pathologist comes back and says well your cancer like all the cancer is being removed but the back of our minds we're thinking about something called recurrence and the 90 percent of recurrences take place in the first year right so one year, then the, after the second year, we feel more at ease. Third year, we think, okay, we're fine. But if you reach five years, then it's almost 100% that you're cancer-free. So we follow patients for five years, and that's the protocol. You, if I could comment on inspiring things, I get inspired with kids we operate on. Talk, talk to me about that. Yeah, and uh, I'm just going through my mind now about inspirational stories and um, I had someone who was 21 years old came in with uh, uh, liver cancer. Right. She was only 21. Top student in a university. And um, uh, it was advanced cancer. Stage four? Stage four. Uh, we couldn't operate on her. Um, and all what she wanted is that she wanted to finish her university course. She said, Ali, you know, I just 
you know, you guys cannot operate on me. I just want to get fitter and better so I can just go do my final exam because I want to graduate. I started something. I don't want to finish it. And she did. She went back. She finished her university. She got on the graduation podium. She sent me photos. And you just see, you uh, understand that there's so much resilience in human beings. Uh, there's so much kindness. There's, there's uh, the will to fight. Um, sometimes you hear people... Uh, distressed or depressed on very simple things in life and yeah, yeah and uh, they've had a bad day because they've had a bad hair day or because their car got scratched or uh, but then if you look at the big picture and see what we see every day and the young and the old and the newly married or the ones who have just delivered the baby like after a week of doing that get diagnosed with cancer then you realize how much blessings you have um, yeah. Did she make it? And it was advanced. She didn't, no. So she completed university. I stayed but for a few months it. and passed away. Yeah, that's tragic. Yeah. What is the role of nutrition and how does it play into cancer and obesity? Yes. Uh, well, um, all the studies have shown that uh, nutrition uh, plays a vital role in. Uh, preventing and managing your uh, body to fight disease, to prevent cancer, and even sometimes to cure it. Uh, there's more and more evidence that uh, our body, the way we, uh, what we eat and what we put into our digestive system makes who we are. Um, well, there's more understanding about the uh, oxidation of the DNA uh, the repair of the DNA uh, defects that happen uh, when we get exposed to uh, oxidants that are available in our food or in the environment. So I believe that nutrition plays a very important role in uh, protecting us from developing cancer. There's more evidence on this. Um, indeed, obesity has been linked with nine types of cancer. So there is overwhelming evidence that uh, being obese, having a high BMI, uh, having excess body weight, and especially in fat, uh, predisposes you to having ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, even lung cancer, and bladder cancer, and three other more. That's wild. I always feel like this is a topic that's super important to talk about because addiction, now, we live in a modern society where they make it so easy for us to be addicted to sugar. Now, this particular addiction has really destroyed a lot of people's lives in a sense that they have developed obesity, they have walking around with chronic inflammation, they develop cancer. What are your thoughts on the role that sugar plays into developing chronic disease? So <clears throat> after all these years of practice and uh, performing more than 7,000 operations and dealing with so many sick people, I am 100% convinced that sugar is the biggest problem that we have in our life, in this modern life we live in, because it's the main source of developing disease. It's the biggest one, number one source of obesity. It feeds cancer cells. Uh, sugar 
was made as a legacy. So back in the old days, uh, sugar was kept in a small box in a very hidden place where people would take it out and celebrate like once or twice a year. It was very expensive and not easily and readily available. Our body is not made genetically. Our DNA is not made to process high amounts of sugar. Unfortunately, everything we eat, majority of what's available on fast food and takeaways in the supermarkets and petrol station is full of sugar. Uh, sugar is worse than any other complex that we can put in our mouth. Uh, it's worse than fat, oil, protein, because sugar destroys the cell on a very it destroys the body on a cellular level. Uh, it destroys our blood lining. It destroys our insulin receptors. Uh, it accumulates fat, and we can talk about that. You know, like forever. It's the worst thing we can have, sugar. But how do we cope with not having sugar? I mean, there's all this like, you know, talk online and constantly people promoting that you need to live with a balanced lifestyle to have a little bit sugar and not too much. Like, do you omit sugar completely from your life or do you promote sugar a little bit? I think balance and everything is good. So there's no formula that suits What is balance? Yeah. Uh, balance is um, if you look if we to, if we want to talk about obesity as the main cause of disease because there's now more evidence and there's big talk out there in the scientific field and between the medical uh, colleagues about obesity being the biggest cause of disease so it predisposes the human being for cardiovascular disease it ruins your joints it predisposes you to cancer it ruins your uh, sleep patterns. It puts more pressure on your heart, on your neck, on your hip points, on your joints. So being overweight is really destruction of, for your body. Massive epidemic. And it's a huge epidemic. If you trace that slowly backwards, like a few steps backwards, uh, once we, you realize that obesity is the problem, we need to identify what is the cause of obesity. And most people think obesity is having more fat in your food. Actually, obesity is having more sugar in your food. Because all the sugar that you eat, which is extra access to your body, number one, gets stored as fat, helps you store fat more, and prevents you from burning existing fat that's in your body. So when we talk about sugar and balancing diet... Uh, it has to be tailored to the individual. So if someone is super fit, super skinny, and exercise six hours a day, and have no fat underneath their skin, they would need some sugar to keep them going. Good form of sugar. We're not talking about highly purified sugar. We're talking about good forms of carb, fructose, sucrose that's available in healthy fruits, uh, and in wheat that is not processed, that's for a fit person. But if someone is already overweight, has lots of fat in their body, uh, and has an excess of body fat, sugar will not be good for them. And having a balanced diet is just going to get them worse and worse. Now, two of the most common gut-related cancers 
are colorectal cancer and stomach cancer. Now, I'm sure you have worked with a lot of patients who have developed these two types of cancers. Now, because they are two very deadly cancers and something that is the most common, I think it's about third most common cancer um, when it comes to gut-related cancers, what are some of the tips and lifestyle hacks you can tell our audience today in how not to develop these type of cancers? Uh, okay, so um, that's an excellent question because there's so much colorectal cancer out there. That's colon right. cancer is a big problem. So let's start with colon cancer. So there's things that people need to know. Number one, uh, if you have a genetic background of cancer, so if any of your family members who have been diagnosed with colon cancer, that puts you at risk. So you need to be extra careful. You need to see a specialist. You need to have a plan for your life. What is this that they say that usually you skip a generation? Is this true? No. So if you're... If, if, uh, if your if father anyone has in cancer, your family has any had it... First you, degree relative is, right. is the worst. Like first degree relative... You're more likely the to get it. highest risk. Got it. Yeah. That's scary. It's scary, but also, you know, like uh, it can give you a good chance to look after your colon and start early checkups. So let's talk about uh, prevention and uh, a prevention that's related to lifestyle and to tests. Okay. Okay. So what so, are the tests that people need to take? Tests for people for colon cancer. The most common test is colonoscopy. So having a camera test of the colon, checking for the, any abnormal skin tags in the colon that we call polyps. So you do that yearly? You start after the age of 45. Got it. Or 10 years younger than your first degree or second degree relative. So let's say if a father was diagnosed at the age of 70, you start 50. If someone is diagnosed at the age of 50, like if, if your dad was diagnosed at the age of 50, you start at 40. The guideline is everyone should have a colonoscopy at the age of 45. So the, the public should consider seriously doing a colonoscopy after the age of 45. That's the international guidelines. But if anyone in the family was diagnosed at the age which is less than 45, let's say 40, then his kids should start at 30. So 10 years younger than the person who got cancer. That's colonoscopy. There's another test called the fecal occult blood test where um, we can check for blood in the stools but it's not as sensitive and specific as a colonoscopy. Because you can also bleed from hemorrhoids, hemorrhoids for example. Correct, yes. Then there's overwhelming massive evidence that having meat, red meat, on daily basis and in large amounts, uh, the populations that have meat in high amount regularly are more prone to developing colon cancer. Why is that? Um, there's so much theories behind this. No one understands really why. It's something to do with uh, um, the gut working extra capacity with and no time for the DNA to recover from any damage on the DNA, but no one understands why. How about stomach cancer? Stomach cancer is also popular, but not as popular as colon cancer. The majority of people who have developed stomach cancer fall in the genetic 
pool. So, pool. So they have a, a, a genetic predisposition. One of their family members had gastric cancer, so they developed gastric cancer. So it's quite similar to uh, col- colorectal, co- colorectal well. cancer. Um, but uh, having excess amount of uh, alcohol, so dri- drinking excessively, um, smoking excessively, uh, having uh, smoked food uh, can predispose you to gastric cancer. So there's a, a weird link between smoked food and developing cancer. It's uh, when, when people smoke their food, there's, there's uh, cultures that have lots of smoked food. So they smoke the meat, they smoke the fish, uh, and this is highly um, toxic and it can cause gastric cancer in high levels. So uh, cultures that have more smoked food have a highest incidence of developing gastric cancer. Yeah, I uh, I do know that for a fact too. There's overwhelming research that states that you shouldn't eat food that is overly burnt. You shouldn't use cookware that basically emits a lot of toxins. You shouldn't make it too high heat. Correct. You shouldn't buy uh, nonstick pans. Ceramic is the way to go forward. So I do believe that because of the research that's been found in, in foods that are being cooked at very high heat, it just adds toxicity to our body. Another question I'd like to ask you is, being one of the really top surgeons out there, what is your perspective of handling the technical aspects of what you do with the emotional side of patient care? How do you manage that? Tough questions, Mary. Yeah. Okay. So the the thing is, the key thing is to keep your emotions on ice. Um, And to differentiate between the minute you hold the scalpel and the minute and the time before it. So until you hold the scalpel and start cutting, you have to be a human being full of empathy, full of sympathy. Um, You have to treat people with kindness and um, try to put yourself in their place. Uh, Once you are in the operating room, you need to be without emotion because you are cutting another human being. You have to put your emotions on ice and work with no emotion, just with your mind, but never forgetting that this person here is a father or a mother or a husband or a partner or a wife uh, or a kid of someone else waiting outside. Um, it's tough, but uh, it gets better with experience. Uh, and then uh, when you know that you're doing it for a good cause, and, uh, and then you are more able to focus on your job. So you have to have overwhelming capacity to focus, uh, to, to stop any kind of distraction. Uh, and just because you are in the zone, you're at the moment, you, like you are stitching a vessel or cutting a body organ or uh, operating very close to the heart, at that minute, you need to be able to just say, nothing else in the world matters except this person on the table. When you finish the operation, you have to change and become a human being again. Because if you if you don't find that transition where you know your flaws, you know your limitations, you know you're just a normal other person, it can cause problems. Um, problems with uh, depression, uh, burnout, uh, fatigue, 
um, sometimes uh, abnormal social skills. Um, so it's, there's so much work out there for surgeons to differentiate being in the operating room and being outside the operating room and handling stress, dealing with um, sad news, uh, breaking bad news to patients. Uh, you need to find equilibrium. Right. Because you, there's a big battle out there. You're like, on one hand, you want to save the world. You want to fix every single patient in front of you. You want to help every human being. You want to treat every cancer. You want to remove every cancer from every human being body. Uh, you, want, you don't want people to develop cancer. And that's your fight and desire. But then on the other side, you realize that you can't do it all. So... Sometimes you win, sometimes you don't, and but you just have to keep going. And your success and the good stories and the happy patients and patients to, who go through the journey and they win their battle with disease are there your drive because they want, you know, it keeps you going. There's that saying, right? You don't lose, you win or you learn. So it's always a learning experience. You're always growing. At the end of the day, Surgeons have such an incredible responsibility, not just towards the patient that they're treating, but also as a family. Because at the end of the day, I always say when someone develops cancer, the whole family experiences that cancer, right? So I want to take, take a step back with what you said earlier about mental health. Now, because this is a topic that's really important, how do you manage to keep sane uh, work really well under pressure, manage to speak to families who you couldn't save, uh, the lives of patients you couldn't save. What are the modalities that you do to really help you become one of the best in the field? Okay, so um, I was lucky because I had good mentors. So during your training, you come across amazing individuals that you think, okay, um, this guy is doing well, and then you, you learn from them. So uh, it's a journey um, to succeed in the first few years of life. So because you start this journey usually in your 20s, you're full of desire and you are the fire to succeed. You're overwhelming resilience, and you just you just want to do it. You just want to learn how to do it, and not, does, nothing does matter, and you just keep going and keep going and keep going until you learn the trade. Uh, and during that, you have to have confidence. You're not allowed to get tired. You have to feed yourself with just inspiration. Um, you have to be physically fit, uh, do sport, uh, eat well, um, and just not think about anything else, just focus. I want to learn how to be a surgeon. But then the transition happens when you are a surgeon and then after all these years, you're the one responsible, so no one is holding your hands. And, well, if anything happens to this patient, it's your responsibility. Any mistake, a patient dies, it's your responsibility. Then it's a big transition in the journey where stress levels might increase, uh, there's responsibility, um, there is, uh, um, people going to ask you about things when they go wrong or when things don't go as planned. So how you do this is by number one, um, 
Meditation. I believe in that too. The power of meditation. Uh, I think it's very important. I think uh, early mornings, to wake you up early morning, uh, taking deep breaths and counting the good things in your life. Gratefulness. Yes, being grateful. Because you can't get everything. No one gets everything in this world. You can get as much as you want, but then there's always something missing. So being grateful to what you have, counting your bounties, dedicating 10 minutes per day, early morning, where you just say, you know what, I'm grateful to what I have. You, be, you have to be able to forgive yourself because sometimes things don't go as planned. Sometimes you might have tried really hard for a project or trying to do something, but doesn't go as planned. And you need to be able to say, well, you know, we did your, we did our best, guys. You know, everyone here has tried their best. It's no one's fault, but, you know, it wasn't meant to be. Let's learn from this mistake and keep going. So the ability to say, okay, we have to keep going. Um, you, you need to put effort. Like uh, I had this, uh, an operation eight hours the other day. I was so tired, I went home, I was so tired, like I was literally tired. I thought, okay, the best way now to keep you fitter for the next operation is to go exercise, intense exercise for an hour. So I got on a bike and for one hour I did like a full speed bike ride for one hour. Sweat like anything. So you have to be able to push yourself, even if you're tired, to say, well, okay, your body can give you more. Yeah, get those serotonin levels up. Mm. Tell me about a quick summary of a day in the life of Ali uh, when it comes to your nutrition, your eating habits. Mm. What do you eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? I think our audience would love to know what a surgeon eats for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Okay, so, um, you know, maybe nothing really special. Yeah, but... Um, Do you practice intermittent fasting? Yes, I believe in it. Okay. Um, I've learned nutrition uh, in medical school, in the textbook, but really from my patients. Right. So because I operate on, uh, on obese patients, so I do weight loss surgery. We might disagree on weight loss surgery, you know, because we can fix that with nutrition and sport. But I've been doing it for the last 15 years. And... Um, I've seen the patterns of my patients. How do they get obese? We're talking about people who reach 160 kg, 180 kg. So I've seen the pattern. And uh, what I've learned, <clears throat> and that's all backed with science, is that um, intermittent fasting, so giving a break for your body, uh, eight hours, 10 hours, is really good in maintaining low blood sugar levels and burning fat. So I try not to eat anything after seven o'clock in the night, at night, and start my first meal around 10 o'clock in the morning. What's your first meal? Um, first meals on days where I have no time to exercise. So I know like today, I'm not gonna be doing exercise. I, 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 I try to calculate my meals according to the activity that's ahead of me. So if I'm going to go to the gym for a couple of hours, it's different than a day where I'm going to be in office all day. And also depending on uh, how much body fat I think I am, I have extra on my on my body. So it's all calculated. So I think, okay, today I'm going to go to the office. 
I'm gonna do no intense exercise because I know my clinic is gonna start at 10 and finish at nine o'clock in the evening. I might just have a green apple, coffee, and then at lunch have uh, maybe a salad with some protein, and in the evening maybe a light soup because I know it's a calorie deficit. So I count my calories according to how much calories I'm anticipating to burn. But do you think calorie counting is sustainable? It's overrated because not all calories are the same. Right. So not all cash is the same. So there's cash, which is dollar, and cash, which is something which is have no value. So people think of calories are the same. They're not the same. 100 calories from protein is different than 100 calories of chocolate. 100 calories of chocolate are going to be all stored in fat. And there's no way you can burn them. But 100 calories of protein can go th- to building muscle. Um, it's different. Uh, on days where I think I'm going to be exercising, I start my day with uh, protein, little carbs. Um, with seeing cancer patients, I've learned you know there's some food that studies have shown has anti-cancer effects. So I believe in olive oil, figs, berries, wild berries, um, and apricot, nuts. Um, there's lot, lots out there about food that has been linked to antioxidants, to better gut health, uh, fighting cancer. So I try to have them early morning because it's an empty stomach. When the stomach is empty, you process food the best. Um, it's a combination between intermittent fasting high protein diet, uh, minimizing complex, uh, pure sugar. So I'm against sugar. Because you treat a lot of patients who consume a lot of this and you know what sugar does, do you consume even a little bit? Uh, I do sometimes, yeah. But is it mainly just very limited? Do you have sweet cravings? If you do, how do you manage that? Yeah. Um, sweet cravings. I haven't been having sugar for like regular sugar for more than 15 years. And uh, once you start depriving or like stopping, I don't call it depriving, protecting your body from sugar. People need to understand that sugar is destructive to the human body. Uh, and if you've been having sugar every day, uh, it gives you a sense of satisfaction having sugar. But once you stop sugar for a few weeks and then a month and six months, you stop having these cravings and life is good. You start melting, you start losing fat. Um, You know, for like birthdays, occasions, there's a piece of cake that has some sugar in it. I'm not going to be antisocial, but uh, sugar every day is bad for you, yeah. Totally. You have operated on so many patients. I think you mentioned over 7,000 earlier. Out of those 7,000, you haven't saved everyone. That, of course, is something that you have to take in and accept because it's your responsibility, but also having to go and tell the family about these situations has been, it never gets easier, right? 
like you said, once you operate with them, you treat them like family. So going out there and breaking the news to family is extremely hard. Mm. Something really tragic happened to you recently. And I'd like to talk about that with you today. Mm. You were in Europe, I believe, and uh, you were at a work convention and your parents got into a very tragic car accident. Can you take me back to that day? Mm. Um, yes, um, it's probably one of the saddest days, I mean, it's the saddest day of my life so far. Um, I was, like you said, I was in Europe in a work convention, and then I got a phone call that my parents had a car accident. And uh, my mom was not wasn't doing well, and uh, my dad is is okay, but I I knew r right away it was my brother calling me on the phone. I I knew from his voice that when he said my mother's not doing well, and he wasn't sure. I I thought something really bad happened. So uh, it was a tragic accident, and the car was burned. Yeah, and they couldn't get my mom out of the car, and she passed away. So sad. You are a man of resilience, of strength, of compassion. But I think there's so many challenges that we face in life that we are not prepared for. And that's definitely one of them. It's something that you can never know what it feels like until it happens. How did you feel when you found out that your mom passed away and you weren't there. Mm. Uh, it was tragic, um, totally unexpected. Um, it was an intense sense of uh, um, sadness, despair. You feel like the world suddenly goes stop, it becomes really black and uh, you just can't stop crying. Um, yeah. Uh, my mom was 75 and she was very healthy. Yeah. So she never had any uh, medication for blood pressure, diabetes. Uh, she never had a stroke. She used to walk. Uh, we used to go swimming together at, when she was 75. Uh, she used beautiful, to cook. Uh, beautiful. She never let us do anything for her. Like she was a very strong, independent lady. So I had so much plans with her. I did so many things with her, but I always thought that she's going to live till 90. I was so confident with the medical field. I thought medicine is getting better every day that uh, the way she was going, I thought she's going to reach 92 because there was nothing wrong with her. So this came as a big shock. Like it was like extreme shock. Um, I cried for the longest time. Um, I, on the way back, I flew on a plane. I flew back from Europe back to Dubai and I just cried all the way through. Um, it's very sad and for people who lose a parent know how it feels um, it was very sad that there was no chance to say goodbye um, in, a, in a sense you never can prepare yourself for losing a loved one um, it can happen any minute anytime without knowing um, but I've seen it so much at work so I have seen it so much at work. And uh, 
car accidents where people would come in, you can't save them, and you go out and there's you see their family and they're yeah, so I'm so sorry for your loss. I lost my father quite early on too, so I really feel you. I know what that is like, but you know, they're always in a better place. And the fact that you got to experience her 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 life and we celebrate her life is still a remarkable experience. She raised such a strong, compassionate man, so there's that legacy that lives on. Lauren Powell Jobs, the widow of Steve Jobs, made a really powerful statement. She said, one of the most profound learnings that she took from Steve Jobs was that we do not have to accept the way we are born into this world as fixed and impermeable. Because when you zoom in, it's just atoms, just like us, and it's constantly moving. And with enough energy and force of will, and intention and focus, we can actually move and change the world. Now, this really goes back to me thinking about he knew all along the science behind epigenetics. So I'd like to ask you, what do you think about epigenetics and how does that impact our lives today? Um, Epigenetics is, uh, there's overwhelming evidence that uh, what happens to us in terms of our health is not all genetically determined because there's a big myth out there that people say, okay, if I'm going to have any disease, it's genetic. If I'm going to be overweight, it's genetic. Uh, if uh, I'm going to be uh, developing high blood pressure, it's because it's in my genes. But there's lots of evidence there that there is so many things and choices that we do uh, that affects our genetic code and our DNA. So if you look into scientific data and see how much the percentage of people developing disease based on their genes is less than 10%. So uh, overwhelming 90% of all the disease you might develop in your life depends on your lifestyle choices. And it's quite important because uh, you can't blame your parents. Totally right. Yeah, you can't blame... Uh, the family you come from, you say, oh, they're all obese, so I'm going to be obese. No, actually, there's so much evidence of athletes, both a, a scientific evidence, also experience evidence of athletes that come from very obese parents because of their healthy choices, uh, eating well, cho- having very mindful choices of their food, um, and having the knowledge behind how our body uh, functions when it comes to food choices. And really just breaking generational curse. Correct. You can't blame your family. You can't blame your parents. Uh, It's totally your responsibility. Before we end our uh, lovely episode, I want to ask you rapid questions in 60 seconds. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah, ready, Mary, as much as I can, yeah. If you can have any superpower what would it be? Curing cancer. What is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self if you could go back in time? Save money early. If you could have a conversation with any historical figure, who would it be and what would you ask them? Einstein. I would ask them... um, 
uh, tell me how to figure how to cure cancer. If you could step into the shoes of someone from a completely different profession for a day, what would you choose and why? Pilot. I love flying. What legacy or impact do you hope to lead through your work? Teaching new surgeons how to do the job properly. Dr. Ali Al Dahme. Thank you. You're most welcome. It was such a pleasure being here, Mary. You know, you're an amazing person and lovely friend. And uh, what you are doing is really enormous and touching lots of people's life. Um, I think what we do is very similar. You try to prevent cancer with the good work and the message you're sending out there and making people lead a healthy lifestyle. Uh, I'm fighting with the consequences of bad, healthy lifestyle. Uh, I love talking to you and it was a pleasure being here. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching this episode. I really hope that it added a lot of value to your life. Please like, subscribe, and share this to as many individuals that you think might impact their lives too. See you in the next episode.